Hello, church. If you'd open to John 21. John chapter 21. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we'll be in verse 18. I'll read through the end for us. This is the Word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. The one who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, Who is it who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but that if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is a disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so, Lord, we... We approach these last verses of this glorious gospel, and we ask that we would receive them as always, not as the words of a preacher, not even as the words of an apostle merely, but Lord, the words of an apostle who is speaking truthfully because the Spirit is inspiring every word before us. And so Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would receive your words, not as the words of men, but as what they truly are, the words of God. And that because they're your words, Lord, you would transform us by them. And that we would love you more and live more for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, a very important day in the life of our church, we finish the gospel of John, seven years uh, leading up to this moment, and it is time. It is time to move on. Uh, Next week, we will begin uh, a study of 1st and 2nd Timothy, and um, and we'll be in in those books for the coming months. Uh, Today, we end with something that we've studied uh, many times in the Gospel of John. Uh, That is the issue of God's sovereignty, uh, the sovereignty of God. And I think we, we should remember this uh, before we, we get into this text, something about the author of this, this gospel, John. He is more theologian than he is historian. So John has given us an accurate history of, of Jesus' life, but he is more uh, theologian than he is historian. So when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get 
you get a history of Jesus's life. You get many parables. You get many miracles. You get, you, you get the beginning of those starting off with Jesus's virgin birth, Bethlehem, Nazareth, all these type details. When you come to the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he doesn't start with the virgin birth. He doesn't start with the birth of Christ. He starts with the eternal logos, uh, with the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. His his emphasis is theological and it's unique. 80% of what's in the gospel of John is not in the other gospel accounts. Uh, He takes a very unique angle at at approaching uh, the telling of the story of Jesus, and it's a theological angle. And and because he's a theologian, from chapter 12 all the way until uh, the end of this, uh, 21, you have just a few days in the life of Christ. You, You have just a few moments even in the life of Christ that he focuses in on and that we basically enter into. And so uh, it's important to remember this theological approach. And so when we come to the issue of God's sovereignty, uh, this is not the first time John has unpacked this for us. Uh, He did this in chapter 1, chapter 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Virtually every chapter uh, in the Gospel of John, John is quoting Jesus who's talking about the sovereignty of God. And, and so uh, if you want more than what I'm going to give today about the sovereignty of God, just read backwards in the gospel of John. And, and these things have been talked about uh, a lot. Now, as we approach uh, this text, I want to just simply walk through verse 18 to 25 in order. So verse by verse, we'll walk through sequentially uh, and just see the flow of how this Uh, unfolds. Uh, First, I think we're going to see the sovereignty of God over evil and suffering and sin and death in the life of a a disciple of Christ. Uh, I want to make five biblical assertions about the sovereignty of God from this text. And And then I'm asking that you would listen for especially, how does the sovereignty of God affect your life practically? Uh, because there's a lot for us here. What we don't want to do with the sovereignty of God is what many do with this topic. They say, if God is sovereign, it doesn't matter what we do. And that would be a great mistake. And I would ask you to, to make sure that you're listening to guard yourself from that error. Here's the first assertion that we need to see. Uh, God is absolutely sovereign over all things which I don't feel a great burden of responsibility to try to prove right now uh, because I've never heard a Christian deny God's sovereignty over all things. Uh, Biblically, it's indisputable that that God is sovereign over all things. The easiest way to prove this is to look at a Christian praying. It proves they believe in God's sovereignty. That's what J.I. Packer argued in his book, The Sovereignty of God and Man's Responsibility. Uh, he, uh, he said this, if you pray, it's because you know God is sovereign or else you wouldn't pray. He says, every Christian prays. If you aren't praying, you aren't a Christian. And then he says, when Christians pray, they show they believe God is in control of all things or they wouldn't ask him to govern things differently. It's the ultimate evidence that we all believe God is sovereign. 
Um, and so I could lay out a hundred verses on God's sovereignty. I could talk about the attribute of God and his sovereignty, or I could simply remind us every time that the Bible uses the word Lord or God, Yahweh or Kyrios, which is like 12,000 times roughly, it implies you have a sovereign God. It implies you have a God who's in absolute control over all things. Uh, it, it's, it, to be God means you're in control of all things. To, to, that's what it means to be God, that you're not like finite beings who can't control and govern all things. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. Maybe you could understand it like this. Because our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Um, I have been, uh, I've been studying the reformers lately, uh, the Protestant reformers, and I've, uh, Zwingling is one that I've been reading a lot about. And he, he gives this six-fold explanation of the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. And the first thing that he mentions is God is sovereign over all the minutia of daily life, over every detail of daily life. Uh, me and one of my sons are sitting in our living room the other day, and there's a, if you're sitting on the couch in our living room in a certain time of the morning, uh, the sun comes through our second story window into the living room, and it exposes all of the dust in the air and reveals all of the dust particles that are floating around. And uh, I said to him, you see all these millions of, of dust particles in the air? God is controlling every single one of those, son, and moving it exactly where he wants it to go. And uh, I didn't say that very eloquently to him. If, uh, Spurgeon actually has a sermon. He talks about this and, and explains this, that every atom molecule in the universe is being moved by the hand of God wherever he would want it to go. R.C. Sproul says it like this, if there is one molecule in the universe running loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty, what we might call one maverick molecule, then the practical implication for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise God has made for his people will come to pass. So Sproul's saying, if God is not in control of everything, we can't be confident he's in control of anything. And we must call into question all of his future promises. And so just, just think about the sovereignty of God over even the smallest things. Think about COVID. Was that not a good illustration of God's sovereignty? He would take, we've talked about this many times, but he would take something you can't even see with the human eye. You need a microscope to see it. And he would literally change history in one location and then spread it over and change, change the course of human history. One grain of sand in the kidney of Oliver Cromwell changed the course of Western civilization. One bullet in the head of John F. Kennedy changed the course of American history. Jesus said in Matthew 10, not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot or the dice is cast into the lap, but it's, that's the dice's, every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs rejects the idea that there are such things as accidents, randomness. God is sovereign over everything, including what is included or excluded from this book, which it says in verse 24 here in our passage, this is a disciple bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are many other things that Jesus did. Were, were all of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. God decided what would and would not be included in this book. He, he decided the exact details of Peter's death. Look at verse, nine, or verse 18. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, don't read over that too quickly. What Jesus is saying to Peter is not, you're going to die one day. What he's saying to him is, when you are old, meaning it's not going to happen right now, it's going to be in the future, when you are old, someone will stretch out your hands. That's common language for crucifixion in the, in, in the ancient world. And we know that this is what he's talking about because of verse 19 that follows, this is he, or he, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. We know church history tells us what happened to Peter in his death. He was crucified. About 30 years after Jesus said this to him, the prophecy was fulfilled. And Jesus was right that Peter would die as an older man and he would die by crucifixion under the emperor Nero. And we know church history also tells us that he didn't see himself worthy of death and asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way as Christ. Now, take that for a moment and think about this. What does this imply about Jesus and about the sovereignty of God? It implies that Jesus planned, ordained the death of his lead apostle to be accomplished or to come about through an evil and unjust emperor. I mean, God, God could have given Peter a painless death. He gave John a painless death from all we can understand. John died of old age. He, he got about twice the, the length of life as Peter did, and he died peacefully in old age. But for Peter, God had a different plan. He ordained a painful death by the evil and murderous emperor Nero, which gives us a few options on how to understand this. Option one, God is good, and he sees and knows the future. He just doesn't have the power to control it. And so some have wrongly uh, tried to defend God from looking bad, concluding God couldn't stop Herod from crucifying Jesus. God couldn't stop Nero from 
crucifying Peter. He wanted to, but he couldn't overpower the free will of that evil emperor. And the problem with this view is it makes man sovereign and not God. Man becomes the ultimate decisive determiner of human history, not God. Option two is that God knows the future. He does have the power to control it, but he doesn't care enough to do anything about it. Morally, he doesn't care because he's not good, they would say. So they would say God could have stopped Nero from crucifying Peter. He could have stopped Herod from crucifying Christ, because, but, he, but he didn't want to because he's not good and he's not righteous. And so many people, as we know, look at the world and they look at human sin and they say, God, if there is one, he could, he could stop it. He just doesn't because he's not good. And then option three is that God is good. God knows the future. He has the power to control all things, and he does control all things according to his wisdom. And I think that's Peter's view, at least in Acts 4, he argues for this. Verse 27, remember this is his first sermon as the church starts. He says, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Peter says, Herod killing Jesus was predestined, which means evil was predestined and sin was predestined as part of the good and righteous and saving plan of God. God predestined the voluntary, listen, the voluntary actions of Herod, of the emperor Nero. Voluntary actions God predestined because he knew their evil would accomplish his saving good. Now, let's take this a step further. That God is not only sovereign over evil, but he's, he's sovereign over sin. And I think that's clear in the text as well, that he not only predicts Peter's death, but his denials. He predicts the denials, the three of Christ. The three denials of Christ are predicted by Jesus, which means one of two things. Either Jesus has foreknowledge of Peter's free will, but he can't control it or doesn't care to control it. Or Jesus planned Peter's fall for his own purposes and glory. Which I would go with that option. John thirteen thirty eight. 38. Uh, we know that Peter's saying he'll die for Christ. He'll, he'll, he'll go to the death for him. And Jesus says the rooster will cry tonight before you've denied me three times Luke 22 Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers so listen let me make sure we're all on board here with what's going on we talked about this before but I think it's worth repeating there's something called layers of causality when we're trying to understand the sovereignty of God over evil and suffering and these things, layers of causality. So at one level, Satan is seeking to sift Peter as wheat. 
He says, I want to take him down. I want to make him sin. And Jesus permits that at some level. But knowing what? When you have turned, he knows Peter will repent. He ordained the repentance as well. So there's the devil and how Satan is working. Then there's Peter's own sin. Peter fell because Peter was fearful. He didn't want to die. He denied Christ for his own volitional sinful will because of his own pride and unbelief and sin. And then at another level, God is at work above all these secondary causes to ordain for himself good purposes. So here, here's a, a foundational passage that explains this. Ephesians 1 uh, says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So there's some things that God goes, this will be to the praise of my glorious grace if I ordain this and orchestrate this. And he has things that he's doing that we can't always see, but he knows. And it goes on, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, listen, all things according to the counsel of his will. What does all things mean? All things. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So here's the summary. Jesus predicted Peter's death and his denials, which involved evil and sin because he's sovereign. He works harmoniously with the Father and the, the Spirit to determine what books of the Bible are in and out, to determine uh, the length of span of our life, the moment of our birth and the moment of our death, and everything in between. And that's not just my interpretation or my opinion, it literally says that in Psalm 139.16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Is that how big your God is? That nothing in the universe is random that everything is fixed and set in the mind of God. Nothing catches him off guard because everything that happens, happens because he wants it to happen. Second assertion, God's will for you is good. Therefore, don't be worried about what God's will is for someone else. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? <laughs> so he looks over at John. What about John? Is he going to tell him how he's going to die? How's he going to die? And Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying was spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
There's a little rumor going on in the, in the early church, apparently, a little gossip uh, that, that Jesus said, John isn't going to die. And so John's going, that's not what Jesus said. He just said, it's none of your business when I die. That's all, that's all that Jesus said. He's clearing up this, this rumor. Um, he, he's saying what we need to hear many times when we say things like, what about them, Lord? Why do they have it so easy and I have it so hard? What about their life? Why is my lot like this? Why don't I have what they have? Which, by the way, social media really amplifies this type of jealousy and envy and questioning about someone else's life compared to our life. And so maybe I should just remind us, pictures aren't a good gauge of what's happening in someone's life. A few pictures on the internet which usually, I think all of us would agree with this, those who are most adamant about sharing all of, all of that are often those who are most insecure about the state of their life. So just don't read too much into it. I certainly don't envy and, and come to wrong conclusions. Peter is looking at John and going, what about him? It looks like his life's going to be way better than mine. And that's always unwise. It's always unwise. John has his own suffering ordained for him. John will likely endure emotional trials, watching countless friends martyred by corrupt governments. Tradition tells us he was arrested in Ephesus and thrown into a huge basin of boiling oil. Somehow, miraculously, he escaped unharmed. Other accounts show that he was forced to drink poison on another account. Ended up being unharmed. He was exiled, we know, by the emperor Domitian uh, to the Isle of Patmos, where he received, uh, he received the vision of right revelation. But, this, uh, you know, that may sound like, oh, he, he's on an island, you know, it's a kind of a vacation. By no means. He was a slave there. He was exiled there to be a slave and served in hard labor in the mines of Patmos, the southern part of what's today Turkey. Uh, eventually, he was freed up and sent back to Ephesus, where we know he died two years later in Ephesus of old age, uh, A.D. 98, roughly. Uh, and we don't know. There's conflicting accounts. Did he die in prison um, or did he die a, a free man outside of prison? But we just know uh, he, it seems that he died uh, peacefully and without any pain. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, it's none of your business what I'm going to do with John. It's none of your business how he's going to die. That's not for you to know. So here, here's what this is leading up to. There are some things Jesus is saying that I will make known to you. And there are some things I will not make known to you, which leads to the third assertion about the sovereignty of God. God has two wills, not one. That seems to be what Jesus is arguing here, that God has two wills, not one. He has a secret will, what we would call a secret will, and a revealed will. Uh, theologians call these things, uh, call these different things. I like the term secret and revealed uh, because Deuteronomy 29, 29 literally uses those terms. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so here are those two categories. The secret things belong to the Lord, which means they're secrets. He's probably not going to tell you. 
And the revealed things, that is the things in Scripture, those things that he has made known, belong to us and our children that we may do all the words of his law. So it seems Jesus is working out of these two categories. Let me show you in the text, verse 22. He said to him, if it is what? My will. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? That's a secret will, he's saying. It's my, my secret will, Peter. I'm not going to tell you when John's going to die. But then what is the revealed will? You follow me. So the details of John's death, which don't affect Peter's responsibility to obey the Lord, are secret. You follow me, the command of Christ, is revealed because it does affect Peter's obedience to the Lord. And so these are the two categories for the will of God that we, we need to understand. Now, I, wanna, I don't want to lose this here, but I want to say something I think is important. Some of y'all, this may, you know, uh, not be helpful, others more helpful, but I want to come back to the problem of evil and suffering for a minute with those two wills of God, uh, because I think this is important. And many people have talked about this. Stephen uh, Charnock, a Puritan, uh, he was a chaplain of Henry Cromwell, he argued in what's probably the best book on God's sovereignty ever written. He said this, God does not will sin directly because he has prohibited it by his law. God does not will sin simply for that is to approve it, but he wills it in order that the good of his wisdom will be brought forth. He wills not sin for itself, but for the bigger event. So think the death of Jesus. That's a big good event, but a lot of evil and sin happened in the process. Here's how Jonathan Edwards spoke about this about 80 years after that quote I just read. He said, when, dis when a distinction is made between God's revealed will and his secret will, it's taken in two senses. The secret will is not his will in the same sense as his revealed will. Now listen to how he explains this with what we'll call a narrow lens and a wide lens. So when God looks at a painful or wicked event through his narrow lens... He sees a tragedy or sin for what it is, and he's angered, and he's grieved, because he's looking through the narrow lens. So he says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, as an example. When he looks in the narrow lens, he, he feels and, and is affected by those things in a different way than when he looks at a painful or wicked event through a wide-angle lens where he sees a tragedy or a sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything coming from it. So he sees the innumerable connections that affect this kind of masterful mosaic that he's building throughout all of redemptive history, and he's weaving together all of these things in a fallen world to accomplish his great glory. These, these are mysteries, so much so that what does Paul say in Romans 9? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What is, how will the mold, what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? So can the finite mind understand the infinite God? Can, can the uh, morally corrupt being, me, you, 
understand the wisdom of the morally pure being? And is it wise to question him? You know, like I, I can just sense that some, there may be some here that are going, is this, I, I don't really understand a lot of what you're saying. You're, you're way up here. I'm not, I'm not getting a lot of this. And here's what I would say to you. That's where you're at right now. You're on the right track. That's a good thing, actually, to not fully understand everything about these topics. Uh, I, I don't think the finite man, mind can fully understand the infinite God. Uh, I think any honest student of Scripture has to admit there is a mystery in God and, and certainly in how He accomplishes His will that we just need to allow there to be some mystery there. John Calvin, the great teacher of God's sovereignty, said, Where God closes His holy mouth, I will desist from inquiry. Modern translation, the hidden will of God is none of your business. That's why it's hidden. So to bring it back to our text, God has reasons that 30 years later, Peter will die by crucifixion. And God has reasons why about 60 or 70 years later, John will die a peaceful death. You know, one of my kids asked me recently, Dad, what, is it, what does it feel like to die? I said, well, it's a good question. I don't know. I haven't died. But some people die very painless deaths. They go to sleep and they don't wake up. We'd all want one of those kind of deaths. And then other people die excruciatingly painful deaths with long drawn out suffering. And you know what? None of us get to determine which one we get. That's for God to decide. And, and I hope you're seeing the study of the sovereignty of God is immensely practical, especially when you're laying on your deathbed and you're wondering, is this really how God treats his people? I've served him my whole life. Think of Peter. Think of Jesus. You know, it's this understanding of God's sovereignty that allows you not to fall into paralyzing fear in these moments or to think that these things are chaotic or they have no purpose. It's what enables us to make sense of the world and make sense of our suffering. And then this is what Peter says uh, to some suffering Christians later because Jesus teaches them these things. First Peter 3, 7 it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So Peter is, has embodied this and understood this lesson Jesus is teaching him so much that he can say to other suffering Christians, it might be God's will for you to suffer. He says a chapter later, first. Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then he concludes at the end, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, so Peter is not interested in giving a high-level, complex theology lesson. He's trying to comfort believers in their affliction. And he knows they need to have a vision of God's will, of God's sovereignty, so that they don't think their suffering is pointless. 
or that God is asleep or has turned his back on them, which leads to the fourth assertion. Jesus' disciples live and die for God's glory because they focus on his revealed will. Because we focus on his revealed will, we live for his glory. Look, Jesus, we need to be clear on this. Jesus does not, is, does not seem to be interested that you would know the secret will of God. He seems to be very concerned that you would know what he has revealed to you. This is the vision of our life, church, to, to know and to do the will of God. What he has revealed about his will. It says in John 7, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God. Ephesians 6, it's, it talks about serving as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service in a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Hebrews 10, you must endure so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 1 Peter 4, live for the rest of our time, in the, not to live for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 John 2, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we know Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will not secret will, revealed will of my Father who is in heaven. And so guys, when we approach life, does it even matter whether your life is hard or easy, whether it's long or short, if God has said, do my will? His will is the concern. And, and, and Carson D. Carson says something amazing here. He says, it's amazing that Peter went on to live and serve Christ for another 30 years after, with this prediction hanging over his head. I mean, imagine Jesus telling you, you're going to die of crucifixion. And then you go, man, what about John? And he's like, don't worry about John. And you're like, okay, I won't worry about John. And then he just presses on for 30 years and dies of crucifixion and happily serves Christ. You say, what would make someone, what would make someone do that? Because Peter's desire is to do the will of God. And that's the will of God. I mean, what is he, what, what he going to do? Not do the will of God? Uh, what, what, are, what are his options? What else is he supposed to do? Not follow Christ? What if, what if, God, what if Jesus come, came to you and said, you have 90, you're going to live to be 95? Or what if he comes to you and says, you've got two weeks left? What are you going to do? Not, not live for him? Not follow him? You follow him for the two weeks or until you're 95. This is what we do for, for the Christ who's given us eternal life. You see, here's what it comes down to. In John 11, Peter just really believes what Jesus said in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You believe that? You're happy to live and die in the way that Christ 
has for you, because you know death is a doorway into that which is truly life. This is why Paul concludes in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever circumstance to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know in in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I'm just following Jesus if it's a hard day or an easy day. He's good. He's sovereign. If we love Christ, we glorify Him in life and in death. Listen to how it's said in Romans 14. None of us lives to Himself and none of us dies to Himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For it is to this end that Christ died and lived again. That He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Which leads to the fifth and final assertion. If God is sovereign over our death, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. That's a quote by George Whitfield. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. That's what, a, that's what a, a real understanding of the sovereignty of God in your heart does for you. I am immortal until the time that Christ takes me home. You think that might affect how you live your life? You, a little more courage, a little less fear, a little less anxiety? If you actually believed that? You say, but Jesus hasn't told me the exact moment I'll die. He doesn't need to. It's enough that He knows It's enough that he has fixed and written down the exact date. Like it says in Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You say, well, then why was Peter told exactly the moment he would die? Why was he told these details? Because Jesus is still restoring him after these three denials, remember? Because Jesus wanted him to know Peter, you're not going to die a failure, a coward. You'll die for my glory. You'll die a martyr. Is there any greater way to die? Is there anything more comforting Christ could have said to Peter, who's still wallowing in, in, in the guilt of all the denials to say, you will be a conqueror. You will die for my glory. You will be crucified like me. I'm going to give you an application that probably no preacher has ever given you. Church, when you die, you have one responsibility. Glorify God in your death. Romans 14.8, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. We have illustrations of what this looks like in Paul's life. His last words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. And at the end it says they knew he's telling them he's about to die. And they're weeping over it. Listen to what Paul says. I do not account my life as any value, nor as precious to myself, if only 
I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of His grace. Listen to Paul's final words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. The time of my departure has come. I'm about to die, Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. He's saying, I died, I died many years ago with Christ. I died many years ago with Christ. I've been a dead man walking a long time. Dying to self daily, living for Christ. I've been running this race by faith. Death is not that big a deal if that's your approach to life. You know, it's not that hard to die for Christ, to die for the glory of Christ. You need one moment of grace to make one or two really good decisions right there at the end. But living for Christ. That, that takes daily deaths to self. Living for Christ is what's difficult. Living for Christ requires 10,000 daily deaths to self in order to follow Him. And church, you know what? He's worth it. He is worth it. He is much better than even the Gospel of John can describe by John's own admission. He's done many things that aren't even written here. He's far more glorious than I can describe. This Christ is worthy to be lived for and died for. Amen? May the Lord give us grace. Uh, may the Lord continue to help us live for Him and to Him until he calls us home. I want us to take this thought to the table today. And I want us to remember that we're coming before the one who in his earthly works, you couldn't have filled all the libraries in the world, all the books in the world with the things that he's done. And yet he wants to minister to us today at this table. Bring your sin to him. Bring your struggles to him. Remember, He sits at the right hand of the Father and wants to strengthen you for your life and to help you live for Him. Let's come to the Lord. Let's prepare our hearts. If you're new, uh, we, we would encourage you to be a believer in Christ, to be baptized in His name in order to come to the table. If that's you, please join us. If you'll be refraining in page two of the bulletin, uh, you can find some prayers that you can read during this time. Father, we just approach this table with a, a weightiness, Lord. No, none of us get joy out of thinking about death. But Lord, we know that Your promises are true. Lord, when You said, though He die, yet shall He live. Lord, we believe that it is only our earthly bodies that die and that we live forever with You. We thank You for the faith of those who have gone before us. We thank You for Peter, Lord, that when You told him the terrible way that he would die, 
He didn't give, get discouraged and give up. But he lived by faith and he lived for your glory and he pressed on and led the church. Lord, help us to follow in this pattern of all those who've gone before us because you are worth it and you are worthy. Lord, reestablish and strengthen our faith at the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.